Welcome to Dial It In, a podcast where we talk with interesting people about the process improvements and tricks they use to grow their businesses. I'm Dave Meyer, president of BusyWeb, and every week, Trig Violson and I are bringing you interviews on how the best in their fields are dialing it in for their organizations. One of the real treats of this job, Dave, I think that you and I get to experience all the time is that there's a million different ways to make a living in this world. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've always thought is the people who are really successful, they're not always the ones that make the most money, but they, they are the most happiest because they've gone after something that they're really passionate about. Would you agree with that? I would agree 100%. So I thought, you know, we should really spend a little time blowing that out a little. Our guest today is somebody who's certainly entirely passionate about his business. He actually has a day job as he works for an envelope manufacturer, but his non-day job, he runs around in tights and he is known in a number of different ways. I know him as Mad Dog. He's one half of the American Bulldogs tag team. Mm-hmm. And he is a co-owner of 3X Wrestling in Des Moines, Iowa. Please meet my friend, Mark the Mad Dog McDowell. Hey, Mark. Nice to meet you. Hello, everybody. Nice to be here. Thanks for join, uh, joining us, Mark. I've known Mark for a long, long time. And I, uh, Mark is really one of the good ones who is not only a professional wrestler, but he's a promoter. He's an owner. And wrestling is a world unto itself in terms of culture and in terms of money. So I think Mark is uniquely equipped to kind of help us look at something that's uh, completely new to a lot of people. So Mark, let's start with this. How did you get into becoming a professional wrestler? I'll start way back when watching uh, TV with my grandpa. I was watching cartoons, and then all of a sudden he switched to all-star wrestling, which was based out of the central states and the Minnesota and Iowa and Missouri and Kansas City area. And I was like, I was all mad because I wanted to watch cartoons. And then and then I, I saw Bulldog Rob Brown come out yelling at some little old ladies, and they're throwing cans of food or whatever at him and then from then on i was just hooked with the pageantry of it all and stuff so as far as me getting into the actual wrestling world i believe i was uh i was stationed in uh leesville louisiana at fort polk at the time and uh the uh, tough enough series on mtv had come out so you're always you know everybody knew about pro wrestling but unless you actually knew somebody you never really thought about how to how to actually get into the business so I, I kind of opened up a whole world for me thinking of how to get into it. So I start, you know, internet was still fairly, it wasn't new, but browsing and stuff was fairly new to everybody in the early 2000s, late 90s. So I started looking up uh, training camps and whatnot. And I found a plethora of them from one over in California and some over in Atlanta and even some here in Iowa, uh, the quality Better than others. I think in Iowa, I saw they were training in some basement and they were wrestling in, in bowling alleys in Marshalltown, Iowa with no ring in sight. So I was like, I don't wow. think that's the path I really wanted to go down. Uh-huh. So as I was getting closer to the end of my enlistment time in the, in the Army, I decided I was either going to go to the power plant or another place in Atlanta or go back to Upper Iowa University and get my degree, which Ultimately, I figured it was the best idea to do and finish out playing football and track and all that stuff. 
So 2005, I graduated and I went back to, I went to Des Moines and start working and stuff. And as an athlete, you're certain you're used to a certain regimen of food and working out and all that. And uh, so I started getting fat. So I figured I needed to start doing something again. So I started looking out and I found a, a little promotion called 3X Wrestling that had just started up. And I looked online and everything looked like, you know, they're professional and everything and nice nice show. So I, I finally caught one and I was pleasantly surprised to how, how, how good it was actually. And, and just the involvement in the more, more intimate feeling to it than going to a bigger show in a, in an auditorium. I tracked down their trainer and asked him about it. And, uh, it took me about three or four shows and I finally got into a ring with them. And, uh, I guess the rest is history, so to speak. So I trained for roughly six months or so. And then I, started getting into battle royals and then they started getting me more involved into the other wrestling matches and stuff and kind of work my way from there uh, the training itself is kind of like high school and then once you're out you're you kind of have to figure out what you want to do and latch on to certain wrestlers and their styles and it's kind of like on the job training from then on out so i think the first question that everybody who doesn't know about it is that's sort of the cliche question of, well, wrestling's fake, right? And it's not. What would you say is a better way to describe it? Every time I get asked that question, it says you, you can't fake gravity. <laughs> so everything you see for the most part is real, but uh, there is a little bit of smoke and mirrors, obviously. But yeah. uh, really the only thing that you might consider fake is maybe uh, some of the punches and kicks, but some of those punches and kicks get away from you too, and they, they turn real pretty quick. So uh, I like to think of it as improv theater or action theater. I mean, it's all a big show. Nobody comes and tells you that Tony Stark and uh, Thor and Iron Man, all of them are fake. You know, everybody knows it's a show. But uh, the athleticism and, and the dangers in that ring are 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 fairly real. So what are some of the injuries that you've gotten over the years? Because you've been you're in fifteen been, years now. Yeah, I'm pretty fortunate as far as injuries. I think the worst thing I had was a toward pectoral, but it happened in the gym, but I had to wrestle in the ring with that as well. A, a partial tear in my back. Mm-hmm. Other than that, just uh things and bruises and stuff, you know. But I, I've seen some pretty bad ones as far as dislocation of ankles and hyperextensions of link uh, ligaments and, and joints and all that stuff. So it, I think the the scariest one somebody did this ridiculous move on a, a wrestler on a boxing ring that really has no give to it, and uh, it, basically a pile driver to your neck is what it was, and that kid had to be carried out of the ambulance, and thankfully, thankfully everything turned out right. He was okay, but that was probably the scariest one I've seen. Yeah. Wow, that would be terribly scary. And so, and I, I would imagine that a lot of this, in order to create the maximum drama, and you know, I, I love you, you absolutely can't fake gravity, but you can make it look really cool. So, uh, how much right. you, how much time do you need to spend to to bring out the pageantry? Like, are there do you do you practice together with? And you know, the the show isn't the only time you see each other in the ring, right? Um, yeah, that is true, actually, because a lot of these guys were all over the Midwest and mm-hmm. further out. So sometimes you don't see anybody until you wow. actually see them in the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're training, you're basically, you know how to 
you're going to fall three ways. You're going to fall on your back, mm-hmm. you're going to fall on your face, or you're going to flip over and then you're going to fall on your back. So there's really only three ways that you're going to end up falling. So it's a matter of getting that into a muscle memory and, and the feel of things to, uh, to make sure that you're safe and your opponent is safe. Sure. And the wildest situation when I was wrestling down in Kentucky somewhere and uh, we were brought in and it was completely old school where the good guys were in their own separate locker room and the bad guys were in their own separate locker room. I didn't see these guys until I actually met in the ring. And it was even more wild because the top face and the top bad guy were on the same team and we were facing them. <laughs> it was totally wild. But like I said, yeah, you kind of, a lot of it's based on feel and a lot of it's based on, you know, what you do and you just kind of, they know what they do. So we just kind of do it. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Can you explain what calling it in the ring means? Basically what I just said, yeah. um, <laughs> but it's a lot of it's based on feel. There are some, some maneuvers or a string of maneuvers that everybody kind of knows. It could be called the international spot, the universal spot of, of that nature. And you kind of go on that, but after a while, it's just, you kind of listen. It's very much a, a dance partner. You kind of listen what they say. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of it's based on feel. And you just kind of uh, do accordingly and if you're, what's going in the ring. And if you're good at it, the, the, it's the, the most important thing for you is safety of the other person. Correct. Got it. So how did you go from being a wrestler to being one of the owners? Um, I was probably two or three years in. And uh, from the get-go... I noticed like their, their posters were okay, but it was very much MS word type of thing. And I graduated with an MIS degree and then the last six months of school, I didn't want to graduate early. So I just picked up graphic design real quick. So, uh, I, I, I figured there was a spot I saw that needed help. So I offered that help. So I started doing their posters and their graphic work, which turned into their web design work and all that stuff. So I was at, I wasn't part of a lot of booking decisions and stuff, but I was very well integrated within the group. So uh, one of the original owners had gotten to a point where he was busy with home life in his, in his uh, career. And so he decided to sell to another guy and then uh, it kind of worked out that way. And then there was another guy that was in, and he was a ring announcer. He moved to Wisconsin. So his shares needed to be sold. So I bought his shares and just kind of continued to do what I was doing and got more involved into the, the marketing aspect as well and trying to get that to blossom so to get the word out. So it was about a year or three or four that I got involved and then uh, then it just blossomed from there. I got more involved into the, the booking and the, and the business and the, getting the venues and in the ring crews and the logistics put together and the production values and all that stuff. So I just kind of got in where I fit in and, and let it blossom from there. What all goes into a show? That's a wide open question. So I want to lead you through it a little because <laughs> you can't just decide you're going to have a, a you're, you're going to have a pro wrestling show. You're going to need a ring, right? Correct. Do you guys or have you your, one? Yeah. Do you guys have your own one. ring? We do. Okay. So we, we're pretty fortunate. We're pretty all inclusive where we can handle pretty much every aspect that we need to. 
a lot of promotions aren't that lucky. And a lot of times it's a one man show, which seems crazy to me just because mm-hmm. it takes a whole village to put one of these shows together. So tell us a little bit uh, about that. How, what, what all goes in, into behind the scenes, just getting the, getting ready for a show. So I think the first part of it is you have your booking and, and talent aspect. And, uh, a lot of it's dictated by money, I suppose, and, and reputation. We were lucky that we were able to build a network that involved pretty much the entire Midwest area and beyond and grew our reputation as being professional and whatnot. So you build those networks and you try to get groups of cars together, you know, four or five people from one area. Then you have your local people as well, and you try to integrate that as best as possible, dictating on what type of show you're putting on. If if you're getting a paid show, maybe you have a little bit more money, so you're able to reach out a little further. Or if you've got like a a local show that doesn't have a big budget, so you kind of depend on the local guys as much as possible or the trainees that you might have available to you. So once you get that together, then you have to look at your logistics and equipment as far as your ring, your sound equipment, if you have production equipment and the recording of all that put together. And that, that leads into different, I would go into number three would be your support talent, which you have your referees, your ring announcer, your bellkeeper, your, if you're, if you're recording it, your commentators, and then your ring crew to put it all together. I mean, there's, quite a lot of components to that ring and it's all heavy and cumbersome and whatnot and trying to figure out the logistics of getting it there as long as everything else. Mm. And that's, that's and, um, the building setup, right? Building yeah, setup. The, got, you know, yeah. Promote the matches. Yeah. Wow. And then you, you book uh, a group of talent, let's say on any car, a card is, is what eight to 10 matches over, over a night. Um, that's pretty long. More yeah. closer to six, six to eight, eight okay. being on the heavier side. But there's definitely shows that are ten to thirteen, and then you're an hour three or four, and the t- audience is tired, and wow, <laughs> you know, people are starting to leave. Or WrestleMania, which is like a, a nine day thing now. <laughs> Two days, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and typically, what I, I, I you, you you try and do also is you try and get a really big name person just to sort of bring folks in. Right. Yeah. Especially initially, like uh, we just started our shows back up after the pandemic and we brought in the hall of famers, Ricky Morton and, and Bushwhacker Luke, just to kind of draw the interest of maybe people that aren't diehard fans in the area, try to get them to come as well, you know, and then, but you have to put on a solid show to get these people to come back and try to give them a hook at the end of the show to get them to come back and be interested in following your product and continue to follow it. So for those who haven't experienced a pro wrestling locker room, and I think you mentioned this a little earlier when Dave asked you about, you know, setting up the match ahead of time, how exactly does that go down? Cause these guys may, may or may not know each other, but they're expected right. to come out and pr- tell a story about how they really hate each other and they really want to kick the crap out of each other. <laughs> So what goes into that? Now, obviously, as your booker and promoter, uh, you got different angles that you want to set up. Sometimes maybe it's just for one show or maybe it's three or four shows and string that together. But um, as far as a, a normal everyday match comes in, you get a couple guys together and 
sometimes it's based on who's available and who you think you put the best match out, or sometimes there's a little bit more thought involved into it that you think for those bigger angles. But for the most part, there's obviously a, as the greener you are, the more apt that you are to try to, to line up everything and dictate mm. the whole match from start to finish. As you get older or more experienced, you really kind of figure out the beginning and the end. And then, like I said, you know what you do and those guys know what they do. So you just kind of do that and then tie it back in together into the, to, into an ending for that. So for sure, a lot of it's, a lot of it's improv. I'd say probably 80% of it with 10% being the front and 10% being the ending the way you would kind of plan out. But you hear about guys like Macho Man, who obviously is a very much legendary veteran. And I think uh, they say he used to have a journal and he would script out the whole entire match. Wow. So, and then there's guys like Dave, so. Or there's guys like Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat that wrestled seven days a week or eight days a week, eight times a week, doing the same match but in different territories. So you just have that match ingrained in the back of your head and you just mm-hmm. kind of go through it, you know. Mm-hmm. But we often find that if you get tied to a certain thought in the match then uh, a lot of the greener guys when that doesn't happen which is guaranteed not guaranteed to happen at some point and they might freeze up or something like that and try to figure out what to do next and tie it back and get back on track right well and, and you mentioned that you have a, a beginning and an end and usually the beginning i would imagine sets the story i see from your page that you have two classic finishing moves do you make sure to always get those in there for the the dog pound and the rabies shot you try to, but yeah. I don't really dictate my match or, or the story that we're telling. Sure. But Can you explain what those, those pushing moves are? Uh, the dog pound is basically a double hanging choke move that transitions into a spinning spine buster. Oh, yeah. Triple eight. Uh-huh. And then the my classic move, the rabies shot, is basically a belly-to-back suplex, which I transition and roll over into like a rock bottom. Oh, my God. Yeah. That sounds and, and not yeah, very many people kick out of that. Yeah, but, so for for those of who who don't know what it is you just said, you're basically throwing a guy down and then jumping on top of him, right? Well, I know. Yeah. yeah. So and you and you're not a small man by any stretch. So when, when we talk <laughs> about the difference between fake and versus stage, you're throwing a guy down at six three two ninety, and then you're falling on top of him. There's there's no yeah. way to fake that. No, I remember uh, I gave my trainer that move the, for the first time, and he's like, "Yeah, that's pretty. That's, that really is a finisher." <laughs> so. <laughs> nice. So I know this because I've known you for a long time. Your involvement in owning the promotion is a family affair too, right? Your wife is, is works within it too. What does she do? Right, and she talk, takes part of that operations aspect when we're all busy doing our thing in the ring backstage, getting everything controlled. She takes care of the front as far as make sure the tickets are taken care of, merchandise is taken care of, concessions if we're doing that is taken care of, any sort of uh, customer uh, problem that comes up as far as like, like recently we had an ADA situation come up and the guy needed the chairs, and so you got to make sure that's all taken care of. You know, make sure everybody's 
taking care of the fans and the, and the audiences within respects of good business practices and, and the law and all that fun stuff. Sometimes you have uh, commissioners come in or food inspectors and all that stuff. She's basically the first one that, that tackles that and tries to solve that before having to bring any of us back to the front. I said you're six three two ninety. Uh, she's maybe five one. <laughs> I think she's a five two and a quarter or something like yeah, that. Yeah, five five two and a quarter in heels. But man, she does she does run that run that show. So I counted four different ways that you can put you potentially make money off of a show. And tell me if I, I I've got this right. You're selling tickets, general admission tickets. Yeah. Selling VIP tickets, which involves a meet and greet, right? And a little bit more money and a little closer to the action. And then everybody has gimmick merch. Explain what what what, uh, your gimmick merch is to somebody who doesn't know what a gimmick is. Well, generally, we have our own merchandise within the company, which has T-shirts and and everything, all that branding, trademark type merchandising. And, And the wrestlers have their own as well. Sometimes, based on the venue, they have to give up percentages of that to the house or to the promotion in itself. And then you got uh, 8x10s, or sometimes they even resell like WWE toys or anything. Anything that you might think that you could sell to a wrestling fan, we try to offer that as well. And one of the things that you kind of pioneered and that got taken off in other places is paying to have. Your somebody would take my your your smartphone and then you get your picture taken with the wrestler, and you right. see that a lot a lot more now than you did. But that was something that yes. that was that was pretty unusual for you. So with all of these different ways uh, and all of this money going around and moving around, and you're in the back trying to uh, sculpt a match, you ostensibly don't get physically very very hurt with a guy that you just met a half an hour ago who was probably a very nice a very nice gentleman but you're going to go out in front of a crowd and tell them tell everybody that you hate them and then start beating on him what does the trust factor have to be for that to work generally uh you kind of get a sense when you're talking to them or whatnot based on how experienced and how comfortable they are sometimes uh person might come in with uh with a history or a rap or something like that. You generally try to give everybody the benefit of the doubt at first, but uh, you've, you've also got to protect yourself as well as others too. So it's, it's kind of a combination. Basically I don't get thrown around too much. So obviously my position is a little different than maybe your average sized wrestler, but they have to come in and trust me too, because I'm going to be throwing them around a lot. So you kind of get a feel within the first, first couple minutes of that match if you haven't worked them before or met them before or, or know of them i think one time there's a i remember uh, when i was very first couple of years in the business i wrestled a guy named eric cannon which is up in that minneapolis area and he's involved with that uh first wrestling at, at the first music venue up there in minneapolis and he wanted to give me a brain buster and this guy's maybe 200 pounds at best and i was you know 290 plus and stuff like that and to give him basically a vertical suplex and dropping me on my head and i was like you know i trust you and that went a long ways with him and me and he came through and he didn't kill me and <laughs> everything so it worked out and it built a trust from them so it's also often built 
been a long time. A lot of times you kind of guard yourself until you figure out that you can't trust that individual. Sure. Well, well, and plus just from the, the, the business of it, you know, you know, you've got, you've got all the guys in the back, you've got Corey, your wife up in front kind of running the show and then everybody's getting a piece of this, that, and the other thing. How does that, how does trust go into the business of it? Not just the, the actual performance of it. Right. Uh, they said everybody has their own piece of the, the business and the, the pie and you build trust over the years of, you know, just doing those businesses, putting those shows together. So you got to make sure that everybody's doing their part and trusting that they're, they're doing it essentially. As far as between the promoters and the wrestlers over the years, some guys are more dependable than others. Like you said, there's different ranges where people do it full time and some people are doing it on the weekends or whatever, and they have other obligations and stuff. And sometimes you run it to where their daughter's sick or they've got to work overtime or, or something of that particular nature. And they're not able to, to go to your show. And some people give you 48, 24 hours notice. And some people give you five minutes notice. So over the time, you kind of, they build reputations of how dependable they are on certain things. Obviously we're all people. We understand that things come up, but the show does, does go on and not necessarily. We totally understand why, per, why uh, wrestler a had to do this particular thing and not make your show. But at the same time, you got to make sure you got dependable. So it's kind of like we understand and we don't hold you fault for anything, but we can't depend on you to be here. So we have to book wrestler B instead. So things like that do come up, but you're understanding and stuff. You know that the world's not going to end either, you know, but you still got to put on a show together and make sure you got enough people to do so. Wrestling is especially something that's built very much on reputation because there's this old school idea of kayfabe that you mentioned earlier where the bad guys were on one side, the good guys were on the other side and they, they all knew each other and behind the curtain, everything was, fine but out in the real world you had to pretend that you really didn't like the other guys and so right that's where that and you see a little bit that underscoring of of reputation management still holds true right right and you'll see that during intermissions and whatnot you're gonna not gonna see some well you shouldn't see it's somebody that just beat the heck out of each other for 12 15 minutes and all of a sudden they're both hanging out at the merch table sharing a hot dog and trying to sell a t-shirt you know <laughs> so yeah you still, yeah. you still got to keep that, keep the magic alive, so to speak. So I know you, you guys are coming out. Generation. Yeah, I, I know. I know you guys are coming out of, of COVID and your heyday. How many shows were you running a year? Oh, uh, we were in the average of twenty plus, twenty twenty five shows a year between our monthly show in Des Moines, and then uh, if we were doing a show outside of Des Moines or we're doing a paid show, a festival, school celebration, any sort of thing like that. So that kind of doubles up, which a lot of those paid shows were kind of what we depended on to help pay for our normal Des Moines shows as well. Mm-hmm. You How know that you're hoping every show is successful and financially successful. Yeah. Yeah. What's one of the best memories you have as a business owner of something that just was just really extraordinary that happened in the ring. Oh man. 
Um, as a promoter, probably the best show feeling that we had was for a local high school that was doing a uh, fundraiser for their local wrestling school and the whole community came in and uh filled that stadium or uh, um, gymnasium there was there was probably a little over 500 people or so but it was all a bunch of kids they're all enthusiastic all very happy to be there and i believe they raised over about seventeen thousand dollars i wow. think for that That's dressing room so it was very much fun and uh even on the flip side there was a uh a local kid down south in Iowa that was had lost his leg to, to a, a form of cancer. So we were able to book uh, Zach Gowan, which was a one-legged wrestler that went through the same thing. And he was a kid, and he came and wrestled, and he won the belt and got the picture with the kid, and you know, the whole family community was there. And that was very much a, a good, a feel-good moment type of scenario. So 20 times a year in, in before the pandemic, you were promoting, booking, putting out money for arenas, just for God's sake, chair rental. <laughs> right. uh, Sometimes that'll get you. Bringing guys in like on average once every two and a half, three weeks. That's a, that's a ton of work. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, and we all, most of us all have 40 hour jobs, you know, chain to the desk during there and rush and do whatever you could do your lunch hour. And, and then after work, do what you had to do to get it done. Uh, yeah. Just so you did all that just because you love it. In essence, I guess, just being part of something, being, you know, you're not just stuck to the average 40 hour work, working for the man type of thing with something a little different brings you to other places you won't wouldn't necessarily uh, go to or meet people you wouldn't necessarily meet and, and sometimes meet some of your, your childhood heroes and stuff. So it's, it's very much uh, some very extra to your life that it brings, but a great enjoyment when you, you're making all those little kids happy and their parents happy and just putting on a good successful show and just everybody leaving happy and having a good time is very much a good, uh, a fun feeling. And, and wrestling, when you have everybody in the palm of your hand in a match, it, it's very much like a drug. That's why you see a 70-year-old Ric Flair still wrestling until he dies because it's very, very much addictive and it's very hard to give up. And in your mind, you know, I, I'm turning 48 this year, but you still feel like you're 18. Your, de- your knees will disagree with you here and there, you know, but <laughs> it, it's, it's something very, very, very much hard to give up. What are some people you've gotten to work with over the years that were childhood heroes for you? I mean, besides me. <laughs> I mean, uh, the time that we did met with Perry Saturn was a very fun time. Uh, seeing some of them. Um, I spent some time with uh, Axel Jim Duggan that I always remember. Uh, meeting Ric Flair, Mick Foley, Kurt Angle. Um, spending some time with the dinner out with Ricky Morton and hear some of the stories that he had. You know, I've I've met quite a few of them, and I'm very fortunate to have done so. It's about the only one I think I haven't really met with Hulk Hogan, which was my ultimate hero back back in the day. But maybe one day. I went down to his shop one time and didn't catch up with them, unfortunately. But uh, but it, it, it's great. And realizing, you know, they're all just, they put on the same 
pant leg as you do, you know, in the morning when you're getting dressed. But some of the stories they have are, are very extraordinary. Oh, um, absolutely. So mm-hmm. I, I, I know you as uh, as one of the good ones, and in, in the, in, as a promoter, where your word's good. If you tell somebody that you're gonna you're, you come to the show, you're gonna get X amount of money. You're gonna give them an envelope with X amount of money. What are some some of the ways that promotions go bad? If your word isn't good, uh, there's a couple scenarios that comes to mind down south. I think uh, it was just a, a young kid that probably could really could considered a fan. He he might have been a promoter by name, but he didn't have the skills to be able to accomplish that or the funding to be able to accomplish that. And he had a show, uh, he didn't have a ring. He was renting it. And I think they came in and he didn't realize that the ring wouldn't fit in the venue that he had booked. So he oh, was wow. unable to use a ring. So he was, he didn't have a ring for a show. And then he, had, I think the biggest name he had coming in was abyss from, uh, impact sure. yeah. and, and a bunch of, of the, of the local guys that Which were, is- uh, just no, for, the, for those people who don't 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 know, Abyss isn't uh, world wrestling entertainment level talent, but he's a known guy, mm-hmm. and he's he's a serious. That's a serious name. Mm-hmm. And so, in a short story short, he didn't have a ring. He didn't have money to pay guys after he paid the ring, and it just snowballed from there. And I think he had pre sales or something like that too. So he did that. So his name went complete mud, and then he kind the. Uh, to do some shows afterwards and he contacted us for the ring and it pretty much turns to you have to prepay for everything because nobody trusts that you're going to have the money afterwards or even do a show. So quickly people got the message and they stopped taking bookings. I think probably maybe the other extreme of that, maybe like a, an Ian rotten that used to run um, down South. I think he had a big, kind of like a hardcore type scenario shows and he built up a bad reputation of maybe not paying people or not putting people in safe, safe environments and such. And so I think people still work for him because he had a name. I think he worked at ECW way back when here and there and people just kind of became a running joke type of scenario. So he was more into the blood and guts kind of thing. He was just not very good practice, like putting GoFundMe things up there to try to get money for shows again or stuff like that. Just not not very reputable, and I don't think people eventually just didn't want to work for him. You mentioned that you started with 3XW as a trainee. You guys still do training, right? We do. We haven't the last couple years because of the pandemic and some other stuff, and it, it it's very much a, a commitment and it's two couple times a week for pretty much your old Saturdays and everything. And as I've gotten busier and, and family has gotten busier, we've, it would probably take a lot for me to get back into training again, but never say never, you know, and you still have to come up with facilities and stuff like that. And right now, uh, training is pretty decent in Iowa, especially when you have current WWE's star um well i know him as tyler block but seth rollins in the that dubuque area and they have uh classes booked up every every eight weeks and they got a nice crossfit facility and stuff like that so that's kind of harder to compete with but but we we still did and 
we still produce quality wrestlers that still wrestle all over the Midwest now. So we're very proud of our, our, our program, but it just, it's a very much a big commitment outside all the commitments that you have other wrestling mm-hmm. yourself and, and running a promotion and, and work and family itself. So you definitely, definitely need to set up the time, the program to be able to do it correctly. Some people just take your money and put you in a ring and tell you to wrestle somebody other than create a, a broken foundation somebody else has to fix down the line if they want to actually continue and, and be able to be uh, trusted as a wrestler in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Or uh, literally a broken anything at that point. Right. Right. So from the business standpoint, if, if, if your word's not good, pro wrestling is a great way to lose a lot of money fast. <laughs> oh, for sure. On either end, I mean... It's very much a, a gold sink, if you will. Even, even uh, uh, right now with AEW and Tony Khan, which is considered probably the second biggest promotion here in the United States. I don't think they projected to make any money like several years into it. You know, same thing like these new football, you know, uh, XFLs and stuff like that. A lot of them predicting they they're not making any money in the first three or four years, but obviously. At that level, the money's a lot bigger than what we're talking at an independent level. But it, it's very much, it takes a lot of money to be able to do anything, and the return's definitely not guaranteed. What are some of the things that you've learned from owning the wrestling business and being in the wrestling business and that have translated into your, your day job, your 40-hour-a-week job? I've actually learned that wrestling is almost more real than dealing with real business people. <laughs> <laughs> we always said wrestling was carny or whatnot, but dealing with some of these other people, you, you quickly learn that maybe that's not the case. But um, as, a, as a profession, my real job, I work at procuring uh, raw materials and I do planning and scheduling and, and engineering for an envelope manufacturer. So reaching out and doing little Working with little or nothing in the wrestling has learned as trans to bringing savings to my real job. I, I think I saved uh, 200% last year of our daily, of our yearly savings goal into that. So bringing some of that stinginess and, and, you know, looking out and trying to find the best deals, whatnot, has really kind of came over and, and, you know, dealing and talking trying to convince somebody that wrestling is a good idea in their venue or their town or their school has transitioned into, into the sales aspect of my job as well. And just dealing with people and dealing with all sorts of situations, learning to be flexible and not committing to one thing and turning around and turning it into a good thing, you know, and thinking on your feet and just being constantly uh, moving and evolving, I think. It really translates well into the business world. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Dave. Did you have any uh, questions you wanted to? Oh, this this has all been fascinating, and yeah. I, I think especially on the last round when we were just talking about the things that you brought into your your corporate world, the entrepreneurial spirit and the ability to read and know and perform with other people at a high level has got to be a huge leg up in anything that you do. So I'm, I'm super excited to have met you, Mark, and thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. If people wanted to come to a, a 3XW show, how do they find you online? 
Uh, we have our website, 3xwrestling.com, and then you can also find us under 3X Wrestling on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all, all those social media uh, platforms. We have a presence, and, uh, and we were very much looking forward to uh, starting off the year, and we start off with Bang with two big shows already, and we look forward to getting back into a monthly monthly uh, timetable. and. Uh, well, let, we let's let's promote. Let, let's make sure we promote your next show. When's your next big show? Where is it? Um, unfortunately, we don't have a, a confirmed date yet, but we're looking probably about March area at Woolies in Des Moines. It's a, night, a really cool music venue, and we've uh, we had a band in that first show, and it went over really well. So I think we're going to continue entertainment during the uh, intermission with with music as well. Bring back that rock and wrestling uh, angle again. Love, Love it. it. Mark, Mad Dog, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, keep uh, dialing it in, buddy. Sounds good. 